You're listening to No Plot, Only Lore, a podcast about games and the tables we play them at. Your DMs tonight and every night are Josh and Chris. You can find us on all podcast platforms or check us out at noplotonlylore.com. If you like what you hear today, please rate and review the show and share it with everyone you've ever met. All right. So today on No Plot, Only Lore, we're going to be talking about railroading. Choo-choo, MFers. Choo-choo, MFers. Yeah. So, railroading. So, terrible, right? Awful. Railroading. The worst. No one wants it. It's... No, yeah. The The idea of railroading is 100% the worst thing that anybody has ever come up with in Dungeons & Dragons and podcast over. Yeah, easy. Simple. Done. Next week, we're going to talk Perfect. about... No. Uh, <laughs> for real, though. Railroading. For real. Kind of a necessity. Kind of inevitable. Kind of, we have some opinions on it. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely believe that it is inevitable. Like, I, I don't think that you can even have a game of Dungeons & Dragons or any role-playing game without some railroading happening. Right? Like, your DM is doing all of this prep in the background between your sessions, and if you decide as a group that you don't want to do any of the things that have already been prepped then the DM has nothing to answer that with. And so if you have spent the last, like, two weeks putting together uh, meticulous goblin encounters or whatever it is, then somebody's going to fight some goblins at some point. Right? kind of doesn't matter how you get there. Yeah, I mean, at the very basic sense of it, there's going to be at least a little bit of railroading at the start just to sort of push the party together, unless you, for some reason, want to roleplay people's boring lives until they happen to stumble across each other in a tavern but you've got to do a little bit of something now i feel personally attacked because <laughs> that is a hundred percent a thing that I i'm do. sure you would but for, <laughs> for most people at least at the very start they're going to find a reason to push all these people into the same room and then push them out the door together as some sort of unified force and so you know there's there's that inevitable railroading but in the end we're talking about a narrative game and at some point, a narrative needs to needs to move along in some direction, unless you happen to be the kind of masochist who wants to just improvise everything all the time forever. Um, okay, and again with the personal attacks, I'm feeling like <laughs> we, we've we've moved away from uh, attacking your uh, monthly DM and moved straight to like one two jabs on Christopher. Uh, <laughs> So, because like, yeah, I I am very strongly on the improvisation track. I do really like to improvise in my games, but even with that, like there there has to be a certain amount of railroading that is going to naturally occur. And whether or not you consider that railroading, I guess, would be kind of a an interesting point of discussion. Like, wh when does it go from like a gentle nudge? to the game is on rails. Right, right. I mean, there's a big difference between, hey, I'm going to have to uh, strongly set this hook so that you understand it's a hook um, versus, you know, I'm just going to tell you what your characters are doing. You know, there's... I think there's sometimes a time and a place for, uh, for both, but I think it's important to also recognize that, like, things being linear doesn't mean that you're being railroaded um sometimes right. b has to follow a because that's just 
how the world works or whatever. Okay, so where, where would you where would you draw that line in your own games? Well, like when do you feel rail, railroaded? Uh. So my my background coming to table, you know, just in my life in general, I, I spent a lot of time in um, improv and uh, theater. So I I'm used to uh, a term called yes anding, where whatever's thrown out, the other person grabs and responds with and keeps going. Um, that being said, that's not how I want to play D anD D all the time. Um, because I strongly believe that if you're going to set up a, a campaign, it has to have a narrative arc. And if you don't have a plan for that narrative arc, then you're just going to kind of be wasting everyone's time. So, um, unfortunately, as a, a side effect to needing to move that narrative arc along in a certain direction, you're going to have to sometimes give what I prefer to call like a no but. Um, so the idea that yeah, you know, uh, this character would like to go in this direction that, you know, sometimes you give players the option of A, B, C, and they choose Z. Um, and once in a while, that's that's a fun diversion to take if you're feeling particularly creative. But every once in a while, you have to say, no, actually, Z is a dead end. But you got to find a creative way to do it. Um I know that we're we're trying to limit non sequiturs given the uh, the fact that our last podcast entry was a rambling giant pile of sure. non sequiturs. But uh, have you ever been in a situation where like yes ending has turned toxic? Because I absolutely have. Like my my background is similar. I did a lot of acting okay. and I did a lot of improv, and there were definitely some situations where like somebody brought something to a yes and fest, okay. and it was just absolutely the most toxic shit that they could throw sure out, right where like the the situation didn't necessarily call for that thing but because everybody was supposed to be yes ending they were like and sometimes i like to kick puppies right and like everybody just had to roll with that because it was a yes and uh scenario right right so i, I don't know if you've ever run into that like in a gaming sense but i've absolutely run into it in improv I wouldn't say I've run into specifically toxic situations like you're mentioning. I've definitely run into situations where you're forced to try to yes and something that is just a bad non sequitur or maybe less, not making a value judgment on it, but that person has a very limited scope of creativity. Um, you know, for a terrible example... Um, the, the Office episode where it's very clear that Michael Scott can only improvise as one particular character. Um, I've played with people like that. I've, I've shared a stage with people like that who, uh, <laughs> you know, ha- haven't quite realized their uh, creative limitations yet. And it's, yeah, it's difficult. I, I have yet to run into anyone truly toxic, but I definitely see the possibility for it there where someone brings their personal weirdness to the table and just puts you in a, puts everyone in an uncomfortable situation with, with how they have to respond to that and, and process it and move forward. Um, well, and that, that I think is where that no, but concept comes. Yeah. In, right. Where you have the, option of actually kiboshing something like it's very rare it's very very rare 
that I'm going to be in a situation where I'm going to like put the boots on like a, a very specific concept that somebody's brought to the table. Right. I'm usually willing to explore a lot of things, but if you if you build a warlord whose name is Adolf and right. you have some very specific ideas about dwarves, then I think we're probably going to have a problem at the table. Yeah. Right. So like the and and I think that one interesting aspect of yes ending is that it is in my opinion also a little bit a railroad. Right. Right, and that you only have one option, and that option is to keep going with whatever it is that's been brought up. Right, you never have an option to shut down a plot point that isn't necessarily working or isn't um, like contributing to the story or to the game. Right, and then move on in a different direction. Right, right. So, I think for me, my line for railroading has always been. Um, I don't tell players what they do. Sure. Right. Anytime I get into a position where I need to tell the players what it is that they're going to do next, that is me putting the game on rails, right? That That's kind of the definition that I run with. Right. I think that's a pretty reasonable place to draw the line. Um, you're not actually taking control of their characters. You're just sort of, you know, obviously giving them suggestions and nudges in, in, which way that they need to go to progress the story, but you're not actually telling them like, Hey, this is how your character works or, or whatever. I think that's pretty reasonable. Um, I, I would say I, I'm very much on the same page with you about that. Um, what I will say that I do that I don't think counts as railroading, but um, if I'm in a game with, you know, obviously I'm, I'm going to have a, decent amount of knowledge of these characters um, personalities and motivations and stuff like that up to that point um, and what I will sometimes tell people is uh, like their internal emotions or or feelings in a situation that you need them to understand how that character should and I shouldn't like very careful connotation <laughs> should be feeling in this situation, you know, and it, it's not, I, I don't, I'm not saying like, Oh, Hey, by the way, like you love this person unconditionally out of nowhere. Right. Like it's more like, mm-hmm. Hey, you see this whatever. And you feel just an, you know, an instant revulsion and, and, repulsion and and unease right something like that where you're trying to set the mood and the stage for that particular interaction or encounter whatever it happens to be um but i see even that feels like a step too far for me right and really? like that i think yeah no i i am much more of um like when it comes to the personal reactions okay. of my players um I'm always in an ask, don't tell place. Okay. Right. Like, so I will present them with a scenario. I will introduce them to a character. I will present the scene as well as I can. And then if, um, they're not feeling the way that I thought they would about a thing, that's where I'm going to improvise. Okay. Them, right? Like I'm going to, I'm going to take that and roll in a different direction. Um, but I have to ask. Okay. Right. So at the end of like a description about, um, like some, urchin child 
huddling next to a pile of boxes with like a tiny hat out. Right. Right. Instead of being like, you feel pity or you feel sympathy for this tiny child. I'll ask, oh, how do you feel? Oh, for sure. No, I, th- I think, I think the diff- distinction is like, I'm usually talking about like, I don't know, uh, monsters and things like that, where it's like, there should be like, it's something you've never seen before, but like, let's say they have some sort of magical aura of whatever. I think that's, Oh, that's a different yeah. thing. That's a different but like no, I'm yeah, not going like, to tell them how they feel about like the poor homeless guy they saw. Like, okay, you tell me how you feel about that. Do you care at all? You know. Okay, but how are we, how are we going to push our like ridiculous left wing agenda if we're not telling people how they're supposed to feel? The right way through the courts and the voting and the no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I I totally understand not telling your characters how they feel about like. NPCs versus, you know, monsters. Um, now yeah, that I mean, like, uh, that line does get blurred when you're talking about like, let's say you've been dealing with an adventure that uh, deals with a lot of bandits, and then you find yourself, oh, maybe this bandit leader's making some good points. Like that, I think is totally different, um, mm-hmm. and definitely one of those scenarios where you need to kind of treat the quote unquote monsters like characters in a way mm-hmm. um but yeah it's yeah. it's see your example of like the the preternatural horror yeah. feeling right like that i feel is part of the set dressing okay. like that's part of what i would be expressing and like that there's just waves of revulsion coming off of this creature sure. or like the the force of the creature's existence weighs on you gotcha. like a deep terror Okay. Right, like those to me are a little different, but like if the critter's just big, yeah, critter's just big, yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. Like I'm, I'm not gonna tell them that it, like maybe it's a scary critter to most people, but I'm not, I'm not gonna call it scary. Yeah, right. You see what it's appears to be a small large. mountain stand up or whatever. Yeah, uh, I might use words like imposing, sure. right, which uh, suggests that they have imposed upon the the player characters, but that that's a really blurry line. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right, so so what what are different ways of setting up like railroading in your games, right? Like if if we have uh, assumed that railroading is an inevitability, it is going to happen in your games. What what are a couple of the different ways that you've seen that happen? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so I think I think railroading obviously exists on sort of a spectrum um, of how you handle it. There's the uh, I guess your more style of almost complete hands off and, and prepare a bunch of possibilities and a bunch of mm-hmm. um, essentially like 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 reactions that plot yeah you just your whole you kind of have no idea where they're gonna go and you're just kind of making a, a redundancy list that you just kind of work through to see what you're gonna wind up having to use and then there's the other far into the spectrum where it's just like, I'm telling you how you're going from point A to point B. And then you just deal with the thing at those different spots. And mm-hmm. my personal approach is a bit of a mixture of both. Um, I do prepare multiple uh, redundancies, but I can't account for everything that players do. And so I also prepare 
something that would be closer to that uh, no but response for anything that falls outside of that. Um, I don't know if there's any... Well, I guess we, we've discussed a little bit before, personally, the approach that you often see in um, online content that's closer to just fully on rails while still giving a little bit of mm-hmm. room for improvisation. Um, yeah. But I um, couldn't point to... One that I've always liked, yeah. and one that I've used in the past in a couple of games that we've played, is the going on a cruise railroad. Right. Where you have a place that you are needing to be, you have like an overarching quest that is of utmost importance, that is happening at one place, and the only way to get there is through uh, hitting all of these stops along the way. Right. Right, so... Um, one example that we had of that was um, the game that was set in the bones of a dead god, where you started in the metatarsals in the, the like heel of the god, okay. and then slowly, slowly worked your way up through the bones, um, and each of the bones represented a different setting or area that we would be exploring, okay. and then it would shift when we got to the next bone. Sure. Right, and at each of those points, we had like different challenges and different people that we met and each of those stops um, didn't feel railroady because that was the direction that we needed to be going. Right. But we also had those stops along the way that allowed for uh, broader reactions and like more uh, freeform role-playing within that stop. Sure. Along the, the cruise. So I think that's um, if I am going to be doing and on the rails game that's kind of the direction that i take with it is like we're on the rails in the direction we're going we're on the rails in the stops that we're making everything that happens in between there though is up to the players i think that's a really interesting and helpful approach where you're like you're on rails in a sense but the rails are not they're they're created by the environment in a way you know like there's only Mm -hmm. you know if you need to go from the ankles to the head there's only one direction you really can go, you know? Um, Unless you really want to take a detour down the left. Yeah, I get, like yeah that. and that's... <laughs> Lord knows that players will definitely want to explore arms for no reason, but... Oh, yeah, there's fingers down yeah. there. We need to find out what's in the fingers. He was probably grasping a magical item when he died. Uh-huh. And we're going to own it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, despite never having any clue about him having any possessions whatsoever. Um, did he wear clothes? We don't know. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that's that's a really useful idea to bring to the table. Is like, what, let's let's structure the overall campaign in a way that steers you in a certain direction while still giving freedom. That's a that's a tough balance to to find. Um, you know, and it can be. Um, I'm wondering if like what other ways can you sort of Obviously, there's there's your solution of, of the map or the geography providing rails, but mm-hmm. what other areas do you think we could uh, find rails that aren't like hidden rails, essentially? I, I like the idea of found rails, where it's just like the, the DM didn't necessarily plan the rails to be there, but they're definitely there and choo-choo. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> like, I wasn't planning for that campaign to be on rails. Uh, it was only looking at it after the fact that I really saw that that structure came out of it. Um, 
I think if you have a very clear party goal, yeah, and there are clear steps that need to be taken to achieve that party goal, yeah, as long as everybody in the party is on board with that goal, it's going to naturally progress through those steps. Okay. It's only really when you get into a position where the goal that has been set out by the setting, by the world, by the NPCs, um, doesn't catch all of the player characters that we start to see people go off the rails sure. and want to do their own things. And that thing that the person at the inn was talking about, about that goblin warren, sounds super boring to me, so I'm not going to have anything to do with that. I'm just going to go kill some rats on the docks. Um Right. Right, like, the, the, those kinds of, like, it's it's only really when the players reject a hook, especially, like, a large goal hook, yeah, that you need to start to, like, steer them back to whatever it was you were going to do. And what I usually do in those cases, like, I, I'm very much a flow sheet. Gene, okay. Right, like, I, I, I will have a flow sheet of things that kind of need to happen over the course of a session or uh, over the course of the game as a whole. Okay. And then... I will fit in those things wherever the players happen to okay. be. Whatever the players happen to be doing. So if the the rogue that you're talking to has decided that 100% I hate this idea about going and killing some goblins, um, but I need goblins to happen, then I will have the goblins attack the dogs. Okay. Right, so now we have more of an immediate threat, right? And now the, the player who was going to go and stab some rats is personally invested. Right. Because he was going to go and do a thing that was interrupted by these asshole goblins. Right. And now he's like, well, screw you guys. You took away my fun. Okay. Yeah. Or you can, you can even, like, make it worse than that. Like, have goblins do a thing near that person that that person would hate. Ah. Kidnap yeah. a child. Yeah, yeah. Steal a baby. Um, like, a- anything that is going to provide a, a stronger emotional hook into whatever it is that you actually want to get done. Okay. Um, you can just throw those in. But, like, I feel like that requires a bit of experience. It certainly does. Like, you, like you're not going to be able to pull that out of your butt just because you're playing as a DM for the first time. Right. That That's the, that's the sort of thing where, like, if you are trying to adapt the flow sheet to what your players are doing and the they don't necessarily take the first hook. Are they going to take the second hook? Do they care about that baby? No. They might be perfectly happy letting the goblins eat a baby as long as they get to stab some rats. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's it's so tough to... Un, I mean, especially as a new DM, to understand what actually motivates your players. I mean, you know, we've, we've, we've had situation time and again happen where you think, okay, there's this is just how a general human being would respond to the situation and it turns out that your players don't think like human beings and they don't have any empathy or they've decided that their character is fully as chaotic as humanly possible and just wanders (laughs) off or the best the one that i love the most is the player who's decided that their character is going to have a real human emotional response to whatever's going on and just be afraid and hide in a corner. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's... Right. Like they just zero investment in actually getting a thing done. Yep. They're just here to fuck around and like drink beers with their friends and their reaction to any kind of threat is to run and hide. Very and much so. Yeah. They refuse to be involved in any of the, the shenanigans that are happening and 
like most of the time I will have a conversation with that player after the game and be like, look, you, you need to either like get involved or we're going to have to ask you to leave the table. Yeah. Like, there's a certain amount of just borderline, like sorry, baseline expectation of, of what people are there to do. You know, like I, and I would, I would have a lot of questions for a person who decided to show up to a role-playing game to play the themselves. Um, right. Not that, you know, we haven't seen people do that. We've absolutely seen Oh, for that. sure. Or uh, some heightened version of themselves, definitely. But mm-hmm. yeah, I'd, I have, I would have so many questions for a person who just hid but you know, you, you have to. And like, there's so many, there's so many fun ways that you can do that that don't involve running and hiding. Correct. Right. Like, um, one of my favorite things that's happening in the most recent Dimension Twenty um, run is Brennan's character Tula keeps trying to diffuse situations with kindness. Okay. Right. Like they're in the middle of a combat situation, and she's like. No, I'm going to go heal the the wolf that just bit my child because I feel a huge amount of empathy for that creature. And it keeps working. <laughs> like, so they'll get into a, into a situation that is life or death for everybody. And Tula's like, no, 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 calm down. Calm down. Guzfraba. <laughs> and I think that's great. Yeah, there's... Something to be said for someone's weird idea also just succeeding all the time. Um. But, like, the, the idea that um, you don't necessarily have to be a violent murder hobo yeah. to play D&D. Like, you can go in and try to defuse situations with non-violence, and it will work sometimes. And, like, th- there are definitely games that I've played where violence is sometimes an answer, but it's rarely the right one. Right. Uh, so it's fun to see stuff like that, but like just running and hiding and refusing to engage. Well, even, you know, frankly speaking, the example, uh, I used in week one where it turns out that violence was absolutely the wrong answer and it, it got me <laughs> dead. Super it did, duper it dead. Get you dead. Um, do, do, do we want to issue a retraction to your DM for you being a ravenous murder hobo? No, because a I flurry of blows, <laughs> punching a dead wizard's head to dust i make no apologies for being an idiot uh it was in character so i feel that's fine um, but uh i will say like sort of to your point of of hey you don't always have to violence everything you could also disguise your violence i mean uh, mm-hmm. Going back to the old well of my uh, personal life dripping into the conversation, but my new character, the the way that the I'm, I'm playing things out mechanically, he's not doing anything. He's mm-hmm. he's running and hiding, and other people are doing the fighting for him. Um, and you spent a whole bunch of sorcerer classes recreating the warlord I, class. I did. And if anyone <laughs> wants my guide for how to do it, I'll tell you later. Uh, <laughs> we'll post it on the page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, the, the game is obviously flexible enough that you can um, you can murder your way through things, or you can say, 
I'm still going to fight everything, but I'm not actually doing lethal damage because I don't believe in killing because I'm Batman or whatever. Like, there's lots of mm-hmm. options available to you, you know? Um, yeah. Well, and speaking of your game, um, one thing I did want to talk about a little bit is how, like, D&D modules, the way that they're produced, the way that they're published, are kind of railroady by design. Yeah. Like... I don't know if you played any of the uh, the older modules. Like I, I know you started in in fourth edition, but did you ever go back and play like any third or, or second? Uh, I spent one time doing a little bit of Tomb of Horrors, and that's it. Okay, neat. And actually, Tomb of Horrors is a a really good example because Tomb of Horrors is railroady as fuck. Yeah, for sure. Um, like it, it is very much like just dropping you into the middle of a horrible situation and then here's the next room that you're in here's the next room that you're in here's the next room that you're yes in. um so like those those older dungeons and actually i the the first dungeon that i ever played in um was a module that my buddy landon bought when we were nine okay and uh it was very much a box of maps okay and that like little booklet that had the gray text that you're supposed to read to your players sure and so that's exactly what we did we played it as written he read the text i moved my characters the next time i would read the text he would move the characters right and we would like play a session of D right out of that book and there is no room for maneuvering in those right like if you if you start trying to to improvise as written uh it just doesn't work right right like they give you all of the options that you're able to do and this this was first edition D, so it was it was a long ass time right. ago but the idea of improvising at that time i don't think had even really gotten into anybody's head sure right because the the module as written was just the war scenario that you were supposed to be moving through according to like the war game rules. Right, okay, yeah. Right. So Well and it the... it's funny you say that because I mean pre written modules are how I started DMing because I had no creativity and was just trying to facilitate what I facilitate a game that I found fun for friends who had no real interest. Um, has that changed josh have you have you discovered creativity no uh perfect <laughs> <laughs> i'll just be straight up with you um you know i oh man other other non sequitur sorry i don't i don't mean to interrupt you but I, one thing that i'm finding really interesting about some of my more recent groups is the prevalence of aphantasia in people who play role-playing games are, are you familiar with aphantasia? i am I'm familiar with the word Fantasia. Um, okay, so Aphantasia is the idea that you don't have a visual imagination. Oh. Right? Like, you, you don't see pictures in your head when you're imagining things. That is, that is bizarre to me. And you're saying you've run into this a lot? Way more than I would have expected. Yeah. Huh. Like, it... it currently on, like, my table with the group that I'm playing with right now, there are two people... Of the four people who have a Fantasia. That's fascinating to me. Um, right? 
you know, I've, I've heard of people who just have no inner monologue or have a hard that time. worries me. I don't, I don't understand. Yeah. Like that, that made me feel like I'm mildly schizophrenic. Because <laughs> the, the voice that I hear in my inner monologue is real distinct. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, same with me. And I have a very, like, I don't want to say aggressive, but yeah very uh outspoken internal monologue um Mm -hmm. and the idea that people just have nothing going on in their head all day they're just not well a friend of mine um she has aphantasia and i definitely do not yeah like i'm the type of person who would like as i'm reading a book i'm watching a movie in my head um i don't even see the words anymore after a while i'm just like i'm skimming them they're going directly into my brain and being translated into oh absolutely um she is very jealous because like my version of reading is i stare at a page and hallucinate vividly okay her version of reading is she's just reading the words that's so strange to me i i it doesn't translate to anything yeah i mean one of the reasons i enjoy uh dan abnett's work in particular is because he's so excellent at describing like combat and details about people that you think are just minor but really like in my brain click to make the the scene real um well that's what i like about uh, sanderson's work too is like a lot of it is like set dressing and like kind of slow at the beginning but like once you hit that sander lanch right like the the end of his books where just like stuff is happening um it's just i turn my brain off and i'm just experiencing the movie of what is happening and all the like like, crazy magic nonsense that's going on um yeah I, i can't even imagine reading a book without that yeah so then okay so bringing it back to the topic would you think that people who are incapable of visualizing what's going on in that way might benefit from a little bit more railroading? Or do you find that their creativity isn't particularly affected by it? My experience with it so far has suggested that the, um, like the experience that they're having playing the game might be different from mm-hmm. mine but their ability to enjoy the game isn't affected. Sure. Sure. But like, Um, are, are they, I guess, contributing towards overall group direction in the same way? Or are they having, this is the first time I've been aware of it. Okay. Um, especially like before we've been playing. So I haven't really had a chance to, to really dig into it. Um, but yeah, as far as I can tell, they are doing as much as anybody else for that. It's just like the the way that they're experiencing the game. Um, they're, they're the they're the kind of players who really like to have minis. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, because yeah. it's so much easier for them to understand the flow of what's going. on. And it really on. helps them to um, like inhabit the space better. Yeah, um, they're really benefiting from visual cues. I have a lot of. Uh, like stuff that I've had made on mid journey okay. for like random visual cues that have been really helpful for immersion and stuff. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of trying those things out with the game, but yeah, as far as like 
their ability to improvise, their ability to plan, their ability to like play the game. Um, I haven't seen any impact yet. Interesting, because I so. just hearing that, I would assume that like their ability to insert insert themselves into the setting would be pretty heavily impacted if they couldn't like imagine themselves there or imagine what being described looks like. Like if they have to. Well, and I w- I do wonder how it's going to impact shared imagined space. Right. Right, like the the theater of the mind nonsense that I find so enthralling in role playing games. Right, um, they've just got nothing there. Yeah, right. There is no theater; it is just the mind. <laughs> that mind, which is again, like I just, I can't, I can't even like contemplate what that would look like. Yeah, <laughs> like I have such a hard time. It's so alien to um, me. Right, because so much of my imagination is visual. Yeah. And so much of my experience of D&D is that same shared imagined space that I get from reading books, where instead of reading words on a dead tree and hallucinating, I'm chatting with my friends and hallucinating. This is drugs for me. Sure, sure. (laughs) So, yeah, no, it's it's been a really interesting thing for for that. It's just, yeah, because I mean, even, even think about like the discourse that comes when a book is turned into a movie. And everyone's discussing mm-hmm. the differences in how they saw the character versus what appeared on screen. And that's just, like, mm-hmm. not a conversation those people have because they didn't imagine that character. Hey, editing Christopher here. Just a heads up, we're about to get into a book called Seven Eves by Neil Stevenson. You have not read that book and you would like to avoid spoilers you should probably skip to the 42 minute point just figured i'd give you a warning spoilers ahead well i was talking to one of them about a book and this is the way that it came out is actually he he recommended a book to me called 70s okay and uh we were discussing uh pre-apocalyptic literature okay so like uh, any kind of book where it's leading up to the apocalypse and like the people's reactions to the apocalypse sure. that is going to happen. And this was a really great example of it. Like seven eves. Um, the plot is basically something hits the moon and breaks it. Okay. And we have two years to figure out how to live in space as a species or humanity is doomed. Okay. Because those pieces of the moon are going to start crashing together and they're going to start creating more chunks. Right. And those chunks are eventually going to fall into the atmosphere and kill everyone. Right. Is this is this that uh, that cozy fiction you were talking about before where it's just like a calm confidence? <laughs> it's a comforting <laughs> This is so far on the opposite direction. Ah. <laughs> this was incredibly tense and difficult for me. To okay. Um, but like the first two chunks of the book are about getting all of the preparations done and getting people into space. And then the second chunk is about the first people that are living in space as a society with a planet that is destroyed. Right. Okay. And the third chunk happens 5,000 years in the future. Which is fine. Okay. I'm fine with a big time jump. That is a big time jump. It is a big time jump. My problem in the third chunk was that I didn't have any characters that I cared about because they were th- like 5,000 years younger than all of the characters that I'd been caring about so far. Right. 
And the way the author was describing things was incredibly clinical. I see. Right? Like, he was getting really into the technology and how the technology worked. And he was getting really into, like, this is exactly the, the social setup for this giant ring that now exists around the planet Earth. And, like, these are all of the social factions that exist. And I was he just, just like, got a I little too far in the weeds. Yeah. Bruh. Like, none of this matters to me. Give me characters I can care about for a minute. Right. And when I was discussing that with my friend, who's also one of the players on the, the table, um, he said that that was his favorite part. The, the super detailed descriptions. Super detailed descriptions about the technology. He wanted to know how the technology worked. He didn't imagine it in his head. He wasn't imagining what it looked like. He was imagining how it worked. He was thinking about the way that that technology would impact things. Right. And so for me, I couldn't get past the lack of like visual cues. I couldn't get past the, the, the lack of um, like a, a character investments. Right. But for him, that shit didn't matter at all. He wasn't watching a movie in his head. He was reading for fun technology. So bizarre. Right? <laughs> but it's, it's so interesting as well, right? Like as a... Trying to imagine what that would be like is really hard because I'm imagining it visually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, really, really, really interesting for me. Um, anyway, that that's way way off the topic of railroading i don't i don't know how to get back to it no that's oh, okay no. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll get back to it. let's just uh check yeah. the show notes and let's let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about matt mercer for let's a talk about matt effing mercer yeah because like we as we noted before like there there is that thing that happens where in Critical Role or D20 or any of the uh, the Dungeons and Dragons stuff that's made for shows, yep. um, there is that moment that happens where the DM tells a player what their character does. Yep. Because they need to move the show along. It's true. And they can't continue to linger in that scene because one thing that I've noticed as well is that um, on D20 in particular... The splitting of the party is almost constant. Yes, absolutely. Right? Like, they absolutely break it up into scenes that involve different groups of players. Yeah. And so you can't spend any longer in that scene. You've got a flow that you've got to maintain for that. And so you tell the players what they do, and then you move on to the next scene. Yep. Every time it happens, it raises my hackles. I get mad. Mad? <laughs> what is it that you're mad, mad at? I am... Um, grumpy at the lack of player agency okay right like what if he didn't want to go outside and get that cab what if there was something else he wanted to do at his apartment and like i get it i get it you need to make sure that that scene is ending where it's ending but like anytime i tell a player what they do even if it's just an assumption right it, it makes me feel like i've done something wrong right so like my my ending of a scene or my ending of a turn always goes is that you is that everything yeah is that everything you wanted to do right and then we move on i understand your um resistance to that particular move um 
and I know you understand conceptually why they're doing it. Um, but it, it's like we said, a certain amount is inevitable and we're not, I think frankly, it's, it's, we need to stop talking about these shows like they are role-playing games. Mm-hmm. You know, they are in the same way that pro wrestling is not really a sport. It's I'm sorry, you what? <laughs> <laughs> are you trying to break kayfabe right now, sir? Uh, How dare you? Yeah, I, uh, all right. Anyways, the Undertaker is on his way to your house. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, He's gonna kick your ass for that. But no, do you get what I'm saying? It's 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 no, role playing entertainment versus actual role playing. You know, um, mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing that like I, I choose not to let these things really influence my life all that much. I don't follow any of them particularly closely. I enjoy some funny YouTube shorts once in a while, but um, I don't watch full series because I can't watch that and remain, like, objective, if that makes sense. No, I want you I want you to describe that more. I am intrigued by this. I can't, I, I can't watch something that I know how to do being done intentionally wrong. Ooh. Does that make sense? It does, and I want to talk about that a lot more. It feels like it should be its own fucking episode. It, yeah, that, oh, this man. goes into the the deep dark problems in my psyche. But I is this is are are you accusing D twenty and Critical Role of being like the porn of sex? Yes, absolutely, a hundred percent. That's as as porn is to sex, Critical Role is to D twenty. Yes, setting up unrealistic expectations for the girth of your sword. Yes that okay 100 it is stunt <laughs> role-playing because <laughs> okay. you know that never mind how they're playing the game like you know obviously they're going to be as mechanically correct as possible but you're talking about a table full of people who are better improvisers than everyone you've met in your entire life um running a campaign that has been written by someone whose full-time job is figuring out how this campaign should go and what would make a good story like if these people weren't mm-hmm. running campaigns they'd be writing books that are that storyline right so to sit there and then expect that that's how role-playing works is just laughable um and i understand that they're doing it wrong on purpose you know, I'm not begrudging them that, but that also doesn't mean I have to participate in there. Uh... That's interesting. Because, like, I... Maybe it's just, like, my weird parasocial relationship with Brennan Lee Mulligan sure. and how we're best friends in my imagination. <laughs> but... <laughs> like, um, I find it very easy to get into the shared imagined space with them. Ah. Uh. Right, like it's very easy for me to um, just kind of like sit back and let that story wash over me the same way an audiobook would. Oh, interesting. And so I am listening to an audio play. I'm watching some people who I have weird parasocial relationships with do a thing that I like to do in a way that is also a story that I'm digesting. 
that's interesting. I actually have the sort of opposite feeling. I can't get into the story in that way when it's so because like they're doing it wrong. What's that? Because they're doing it wrong. Yeah. Well, what's interesting was like I was able. I've never been able to watch an episode of, um, what's their names? The big guys there, uh, Critical Role. But I was able oh, to man. watch their yeah. cartoon series. Their cartoon series was great. Yeah. And I think the difference was that, like, it buried the, the role-playing game. Mm. And I just got to see a narrative happen. And I didn't have to think about how they were doing a bad role-playing game. I just got to see, like you do, a story that I was... That is so intriguing because, like my my experience with the uh, animated series was actually a little bit the opposite. Oh, really? Where I was seeing the roles that were made. Ah. Right? I was looking at the spells that they were casting, and I was like looking at all of the mechanical stuff that was happening in the background, right. and like some of the the mechanical bits that had been fudged. Yep. And some of the stuff that they had done that where they, they used kind of an interesting version of a rule okay. to do a thing. And so, like, I, I had a bit of trouble turning my DM brain off for uh, Vox Machina. That's very, yeah, because like you said, like, my DM brain was completely off because I was just like, well, this is just a cartoon about some weirdos. And, oh, look at all those D&D references. <laughs> well, and, like, for watching... Um, D20. I, I have some difficulty getting into Critical Role. Um, I think it's just that the... They're too pretty. The structure... They are really pretty. The entire The whole cast is just... Is just... Oh my god. It's ridiculous how attractive all of those people are. And that is so not, not representative of role-playing games. <laughs> just... <laughs> like... I don't know if I want to, like, have sex with or be Travis. Oh. But it's one of them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah that that man is ridiculously attractive. it's probably anyway. both. <laughs> Pro- maybe a bit of both yeah if i could just shape change into him and then also fuck him yeah i think that that would be a fantastic evening um we're editing this right <laughs> no, no part of it whatsoever if i had to deal with spilling my real world problems last week you can deal with outing yourself publicly uh good <laughs> no but like yeah i have some difficulty getting into critical role yeah. i think largely because the pacing oh is, yeah, yeah um a little slower um and like i i i really appreciate all of those people as players and if they were sitting at my table we would be having a great Absolutely. time um but watching them play is a little less engaging for me than the d20 crew and i think that speaks to like production quality and experience with the like show biz part of it because like that's that's the um college humor yeah right like they've got a lot of experience building shows and like making a show that works and making sure that the timing is right and making sure that all the the lights and the effects and like their fucking dome is ridiculous oh yeah um i wouldn't be able to dm in there it would be too distracting (laughs) <laughs> but like don't worry the, i don't think they're inviting you i mean give it a minute for the podcast to get popular okay. <laughs> they, they might invite me to play we'll, we'll see how it goes and then i'll just be like sitting there across from travis sweating <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll lock into that one season where they where they get him in and uh it's gonna be brutal 
but uh yeah like the what was it i was about to say nope i've lost it okay lost it forever well uh it's probably super important and we're gonna be worse off for having lost it but i know that's okay yeah it was definitely getting back to the topic though well, we'll find our way there yeah, eventually. Of, of, like, railroading. Right, no, the thing that I was going to say. Okay, okay I remember you. Um, do you think... No. And I, I have an opinion about this okay. as well. But do you think that the way that role-playing games is shown in these shows is making new DMs more railroady? Oh, Do you absolutely. think they're going to be railroading more? Absolutely. Um... I I super have already felt like the oversize uh, influence of these guys uh, in players, and then now I've seen it happen in new DMs because there's not a lot of there's not a lot of good examples out there of like how to run like a real campaign. Because every example that you wind up going with is from something that is super time constrained um, mm. and has a super big production behind it. Um, you know, even going back to when I got into things and, and the Penny Arcade fellows were uh, starting to do their podcast adventures, you know. Shout out to Mike Perkins, though. Yeah, oh, hey, that guy. Chris Perkins. Chris, yeah, no, he's Chris Perkins so is. Good fantastic and definitely there are things about how he dms that you should 100 percent model and steal for yourself i he's a little bit my nemesis <laughs> um back when i was working in the games industry um he, he and i would have occasional conversations that were heated um oh, no. but I, I i love him to bits he's he's it, it was it was rules talk oh for sure it's just like yeah like how dare you fifth edition on my fourth edition. Right. Right. I was like the, the one person at the entire convention that was like, yay, fourth edition. And then they were like, fifth edition's happening. And I was like, Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I mean, again, as great of a DM as he is, he, you, you understand quickly. He's running one shots, you know? Yeah. Um, he, you don't really get to see people explore, the world over the course of a regular campaign um that's such an important skill too though right like the the one shot is i think an underrated art form in role definitely definitely how do you have one good saturday of role playing with people um and keep it under 12 hours yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) how do you condense you know like i would say a, a good one shot doesn't have to be you know down to one night but like six hours i think is not unreasonable but again there's also a skill to just running those one offers at uh you know for a wednesday night group that is only two hours um yeah i can't do it i'll tell you right now i'm terrible at running short things uh i have a feeling that has something to do with your height um Really easy running over short yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just steamroll the short stuff. 
No, but like, I've, and actually, interestingly, th- this isn't in our notes, and I'm not sure we're going to have time to, to delve into it too terribly hefty because we're trying to keep to one hour or close to it. But like, one one shots by necessity have to be more railroaded than a longer campaign because a longer campaign you've got time to breathe definitely right you've got time to like move out and explore different areas and all of that one shot you've got a solid like five hours of playing yeah and shit has to get done yeah right or you're just not going to get through the story well and, and frankly you also have to like establish relationships faster and, and motivations faster yeah. and so you need to kind of like I was saying earlier, be a little more like, this is how you feel about the situation. You love this guy because he's your best friend and also he's telling you to go do this thing. Go! And he might be a wizard yeah. that is very old and knows all of the dragons by name. Yeah. Yeah. No. So, th- that might actually be an interesting idea for, for another episode too, is just like, how to do one-shots. Although you just told me you're terrible at them, so maybe we won't talk well, about Well, no. So... <laughs> What, where, where I am good at is taking pre-written one-shots and running those with people, um, which okay. I think uh, is a great way to sort of start DMing. It's just run something that's low stakes, that's already sort of pre-written, and learning how to move people through an adventure. And then you get around to writing an adventure as opposed to just, you know, experiencing it. All right, so... Uh... Final minutes here. What, what is our what is our conclusion on railroading? I think uh, railroading always bad. I think to, I think um, honestly though to sum it up, railroading is a tool like anything else in your your storytelling toolbox. Um, it's something that I think you need to use a lot of discretion with. Um, you know, we didn't get a chance to touch on it, but I think it's also one of those things that. Uh, you may apply more freely early on with newer players and pull back on it as they get more experience. Um, hmm. But it's not something that you can pretend will never happen. Um, and if it does never happen, maybe you're sort of losing control of the game and people are going to wind up being a little disinterested because nothing's going anywhere. They're just kind of farting around. Or you just have the best players that have ever existed. Yeah, yeah. So, somehow you've lucked into this, this incredible crew and you have to take no responsibility, but whatever. Yeah. You, you just have to sit there and like feed them settings sometimes, and then they will f- fill in all the blanks. Yeah. I'm going to go find goblins, and then I'm going to find the goblin entry in the monster manual for you so that I can fight those goblins. Yeah. And also, <laughs> yeah, the, not only, the, the true definition of no plot, only lore. You just set it up. And then they'll run through whatever, and they'll figure out the plot on their own. Perfect. Because there is no plot. It's all found. Yeah. Just lore. Just lore. As long as you got the lore. Just bring the lore. 